This is the Evergreen Empire. Green grow the forests and fair flow the streams. The gentle deer grazes, the wild blossom gleams. From ocean wave raging to mountain serene. All nature's proclaiming our land's evergreen. Welcome to Columbia Conversations. I'm Felix Bunnell, editor of Columbia Magazine for the Washington State Historical Society. On this episode, Ron Judd, staff writer for the Seattle Times Pacific Northwest Magazine, on what we can learn from the history of Seattle and the Northwest during the roaring 1920s that might come in handy in the 2020s. People talk about the American experiment as if it's some Petri dish kind of thing. But the more I study history, the more I think that that term is so accurate because we've been really close at times to having this whole thing just kind of fall apart. Ron's piece in the Seattle Times Pacific Northwest magazine is called Studying Seattle's Roaring Twenties History Might Help Us Get Through This Next Decade. It appeared in the print edition of the Sunday Times of January 12, 2020, and is also available at seattletimes.com. I spoke with Ron Judd by phone from a snowy Whatcom County. So, Ron Judd, thanks for joining us on Columbia Conversations. I, I love the piece you have in the Seattle Times about looking at the 1920s and thinking about the 2020s. Where did you get the idea from? I just sort of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not one of these people who likes to, to write about decades and, and periods, you know, signifying like, like um, you know, people talk about the Roaring Twenties and everything has a title, and I, don't, I think it's all a little bit too tidy. But... And just, you know, in, in talking to my editor at the, at the Times, who I've worked with for a long time, we were talking about the, the dawn of a new decade. And I think the 1920s is a, is in particular is a really interesting decade in the Northwest, especially, and it sort of lines up with my area of historical research about the radical politics back in that time. So I, I took on this sort of daunting and always sometimes questionable task of trying to write a straight history piece for a, journal, for a modern journalism outlet, which is always tricky because, you know, some people would just gloss over with boredom. But I tried to uh, talk about that era and what made it unique and, and bring it into the present context of politics and, and our own modern history today. I think it's great. And I think people love local history. I think that's, you know, whether it's on a newspaper website or, you know, like a radio station website, whatever, it feels like local history, especially with social media, gets a lot of traction these days. People like to see old pictures, and they sometimes even have the patience to read <laughs> read the captions yeah. of the old pictures, too. This piece actually got a really good response in that way. I mean, and I think it's especially important that we try to put out this local history for because we have so many newcomers here who don't know it. And um, a lot of us who've grown up around here, like like you and me, probably know p- pieces of it. But a lot of our, especially Seattle residents, are so new that it's all new to them. And I think they find it really interesting. So take me through the, the 1920s, kind of maybe maybe three or four things, step by step, like the 1920s um, person or history thing and how it compares to something in the 2020s. Yeah, I, I thought the thing that, to me, that marked the 1920s was, the, especially the way the decade started, the early 1920s, and, and this is true around the country, but especially in the Northwest, there was so much of what motivated people to um, to act and, and, and promote their cause in the 1920s were a reaction against what happened in the 19-teens. And, you know, it doesn't take a genius to see some sort of parallels between that and a lot of our politics today, which are a strong reaction to nationally to the last administration we have an administration now that's trying to erase that administration and you saw a lot of that in the early 1920s with people responding to the the leftist progressive 
politics, especially in the Northwest. And that's something that's been really studied heavily by historians, you know, the, the Seattle strike of 1919 and all of the progressive unionism that happened here. And we're known for that. But I, I found in my own historical research that one thing that hasn't been as explored as deeply and probably as much as it should be is the way that that leftist progressive uh, reputation in the Northwest prompted an opposite and equal reaction of really stout sort of right-wing conservatism that that um, grew up in response to that. And after World War One, you saw a lot of the progressives and the progressive movement and people in, in the Northwest who were part of the labor movement or even things as sort of ordinary as the um, Protestant church system who were sort of leftist, progressive, not quite socialist, but very um, sort of collectivist, you know, at that time. And there was a strong... Act, uh, retribution against all these people. People lost their jobs, lost their lives. People were imprisoned under the Alien Sedition Act. Um, very ugly time as far as people responding to what had just gone on. And that struck me as very similar to the way that we behave today. And um, I tried to touch on that and, and make the point really generally that these kind of strains and these arguments in our, that are alive in our politics today are not new. The people that are, you know, out calling... Um, Democratic candidates today, socialists, um, aren't, aren't inventing that process. They're just, in fact, they're 100 years behind the wave, and, and you think they come up with something new. But this has been part of our, of our history and part of our sort of cultural bloodstream in the country for a long time. And it's come up and been beaten down, and it's come up again. And I think it's especially acute in the Northwest, where it seems to be a little bit more raw, the, the politics on both sides here, for whatever reason than elsewhere in the country. And that's what I found interesting about the comparison between the, the two decades, at least the way they're starting. And and so, I mean, and I've always been fascinated with that notion of, it's almost like kind of anything goes out here as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. You're kind of allowed to sort of explore whatever extremist views you have. And, you know, especially going back to the, like the turn of the century, turn of the last century. And so, in the terms of the chicken and egg part of it, did the progressivism come first and then the right-wing stuff was a reaction to it or were they sort of both always there or you, any, any sense about kind of which came first? That's a really good question and I've, I've played around with that a lot and kind of, you know, come to the piece with the question that it doesn't really matter. I mean, they're both they're both here. I think in a, in a sort of if you take the 10,000 foot view and look back at history, in the Northwest especially, you can say that the progressivism probably came first. I mean, there was, you know, the people who settled, the, the Euro settlers who settled this region were were a, a mix of, of beliefs and cultures and, a, and kind of the proverbial melting pot. But just the nature of how we all started to make a living here through resource extraction and things sort of um, tended to um, cause people who are common laborers to be exploited. And that brought on the strong union movement. And, you know, progressivism here, there was always a spirit of progressive adventure here among people who were willing to try things out. You know, that's why the Wobblies had such a had such a strong foothold here. They were going to make the one, the world's one big union, and if there was a place to do it, it was here, right? Yeah. People could reinvent themselves and start fresh, and it was kind of a clean slate. So yeah, I think progressivism here um, owes its roots to that spirit, which is still here to some degree, I think. But people tend to overlook things strong retribution to that that happened, especially after World War One, which is why um, I still think that our, our country kind of reels 
from waves, shock waves that were set off by World War One. Even a hundred years later, we have we're still sort of rebounding from ripples that were set off by that conflict. Yeah, which I guess here. yeah, which I guess is the first time the United States really wades into an overseas, a big overseas conflict. I mean, there have been the Spanish-American War, but in terms of wading into Europe and like the sort of the deep sort of heart of the world civilization at that point, World War One is when the the America that we still know today, that's when it really begins, I guess. Yeah, and I, and I think it made, you know, just from my limited studies of the era, and, and there's people that know way more about this than I do, but the message I take away from the, the post-World War One era is that it, Americans felt vulnerable. You know, after World War One, it was sort of like, oh, my God, we're not immune from this stuff that's happening overseas that we've been reading about, you know, in the New York Times and the violent revolution and, and, and the horrors of, of mechanized war that people came to grips with, and people were scared. And, and since then, I think that our politics in the country have been marked by what I call the politics of fear, which is that people are afraid that what we have here and what little things that we cling to here that we enjoy as our lifestyle are, are in danger. And I think you've seen that kind of revived in the country after 9-11 in a, in a very sort of similar way where we kind of got over that and got complacent and got to work on some domestic things that were aspirational rather than, you know, rather than reactive. And then 9-11 comes along and all of a sudden people are feeling again vulnerable in the politics of fear that we saw happen here, especially in the Northwest 100 years ago, sort of just recycled almost in the same sort of pattern. Mm. And so I think it's important to, to look at what happened back then and see how we responded. And I mean, one of the figures who, who pops out in your piece and who I've read about before in terms of the 1919 general strike and then going on down to found San Clemente down in California and kind of completely changing industries is Ole Hansen. Yeah, Ole Hansen, the mayor of Seattle who, who um, sort of bumbled his way through the general strike and, and, and the general strike collapsed on its own accord after less than a week and nobody got hurt. And and Ole Hansen then tried to turn the thing into his own personal sort of political birth nationally and went on this national speaking tour and talked about basically how he alone, he alone, I alone stopped the, the uh, collectivist revolution from launching from the shores of Puget Sound. And he tried to make himself this strongman figure. And he was representative of a lot of, of, a lot of the establishment um, thought in Seattle at the time, including the newspaper publishers and and people who were in positions of authority, you know, um, wanted to make a lesson of these people that had dared to go on strike and try to shut down a city. And that was a political movement that was happening around the country. And this was at the start of the, what people now talk about as the first Red Scare. And Seattle and its conservative um, icons had a big role in getting that rolling. And Hanson was one of those people. Ultimately failed. Yeah, and what's amazing also about that era is that in, in so many ways, the modern city that's in place now, both infrastructure-wise and just the look and feel and just the, the sort of urban core of Seattle is pretty much all kind of built in the 1920s. The streets are laid out that way. The, you know, the Smith Tower's there, of course. And you have this, like, the, the, you know, there's great photos in your, in your piece in the Times of the Civic Center with the, auto, the Civic Auditorium that's now McCaw Hall. And all, right. all, all these pieces that were, they're, they're still there. It's, it's almost like, I mean, Seattle's not nearly as old as a city like Paris or London, but it feels like we've kind of, we've built the city we're going to have for at least the next couple hundred years, and it seems like that city was mostly built in the 1920s. 
Yes, I agree. And, and a lot of the, the civic framework and, and, you know, just the actual literally carving out of, of the city out of the, of the what used to be a bunch of hills alongside Lake Union with the Denny Regrade project. And I also thought that was an interesting parallel in that the city itself was kind of back in 1920 was just at the end of this huge physical transformation in addition to all the cultural and political stuff because they had literally carved out mountainsides of, of earth in what's now the Denny regrade there, you know, it's not called that anymore except to old timers like ourselves, but, um, you know, and, and we've seen that happen again, just in this start of the twenties with the South Lake union transformation and everybody goes downtown and somebody goes downtown and has been there in five years and goes, Oh my God, what happened here? Right. And it's such a shocking thing where people are sort of like, um, this is a different place. It feels different. It has a different, a completely different feel. And I think that the 1920s, you're right. As a lot of our infrastructure, that we enjoy or lament today um, definitely came together then. I, I was chatting with somebody recently who said that um, when I see people complaining or, or fretting that all these things that they love about Seattle are going away, it's usually that person hasn't lived here very long. They lived here maybe 10, 15, 20 years, where people like this person I was talking to and myself who've been here our whole lives, we, we've seen Seattle changing constantly. If you've been paying attention, Seattle's constantly been reinventing itself and tearing things down and ripping up entire neighborhoods and putting in you know, freeways with a viaduct or whatever. And there's sort of this sense I found among longtime residents that eh, you know, we've sort of seen this all before and that Seattle's strength is this ability to reinvent and to become almost a completely different city culturally and economically anyway every generation or so. Yeah, I think that's true, and I, I think history shows that. I mean, the thing that I think that makes has always made Seattle kind of special is that resiliency, you know. And part of that, I think, is not on purpose. It's just a response to the fact that we've had these economic cycles, boom-bust cycles that have been really profound, even more so than a lot of other places, you know, with industries that just go kaput and then they come back <laughs> or another one takes their place. And it's, you know, we have to change to, to exist, you know. And... I think though that some of it that some of that is like you say intentional and it kind of reflects that sort of pioneer spirit at least of of the Euro people who live here um who who have always seen the place as a place to start new and that's still the case today. I mean, you know, when Jeff Bezos was looking for a place to plant his flag and make his empire, he he saw Seattle, of course the lack of an income tax didn't hurt, but you know, that it was known for that kind of um can-do spirit and let's let's try something new here and the, and that's i think what's attracted a lot of the tech world to seattle today but but you're right i mean if you're here and you spend a lot of time here and you don't see the rapid nature of the change so much or there's periods where we'll go by for 20 years and not a lot changes and then all of a sudden it kicks into gear again and so some of the people do see it as profound change but you're right that's been wrapped into our history i think ever since the beginning hey you know so back in the 1920s was our baseball team any better <laughs> um, probably. <laughs> it would have to be. Right? <laughs> it seems like we're stuck in that kind of adolescent, painful adolescent era where the team's been bad only for, what, 20 years or so. Not long enough to be beloved like the Cubs. <laughs> or, yeah. or, or not short enough where it's just a temporary thing. We're sort of in between where it's going to be sort of a, a cliche thing and we have to live with it until it either gets better or gets a lot worse yeah, than we're used we're, to it. We're well on our way to historic ineptitude in terms of baseball. <laughs> I mean, I, th I think that you can argue that our baseball franchise is by far the least successful of any professional sports franchise in the last 30 years. Yeah. Is it the only team that hasn't been in the World Series ever? I, I think now, yeah. yeah.
That's quite the honor, quite the distinction. Although I do count the Milwaukee Brewers, and they were in the World Series, and they were the Seattle Pilots originally. So technically, I feel like we have had a Seattle Major League team that has eventually made it to the World Series, just like in the Witness Protection Program, though. <laughs> yeah, now, sort of. <laughs> now, in the 1920s, so setting 1920s, what tips do you have for people listening for how to better prepare for the 2020s? Is there anything we can do or anything you can predict about the coming decade? Well, I think, you know, and I, but I pointed this out in my story that, you know, you can look at what happened here in the in the 1920s and get really bummed out about it in one sense on the one hand because you feel like oh my god we're we're a lather rinse repeat society we keep repeating these mistakes because we don't appreciate our own history but i also take some inspiration in seeing sort of how messed up we've been at times in the past and i made a reference in my story to this term which i used to not like as a historian or as a journalist as, you know as a, people talk about the american experiment as if it's some petri dish kind of thing but the more i study history the more i think that that term is so accurate because we've been really close at times to having this whole thing just kind of fall apart and i think the 20s and the 30s were one of those times right and you know we've had some profound challenges to our sort of our um our political system over that hundred years that have that have been scarier than i think where we are right now in a lot of ways and we've still managed to muddle through so I take some comfort in some of this history and knowing that um, we can overcome these divisions. But the other lesson that I learned, and I think this is very important for people, is to look at the long view, which is that the stuff that's happening in politics today, which freaks a lot of us out and depresses a lot of us, has been an undercurrent in our politics for 100 years. And, you know, I said this in the story that um, you, you can't get to a place in America or in the Northwest and say, we've carved out the society we want let's live in it and enjoy it i mean you can try that but it doesn't work because these forces that want to knock that down are always there they've always been there and you can't say that those forces have been defeated as much as beaten back a ways <laughs> and so what i hope people will take from the history is that that fight goes on which is depressing in one way but it's winnable so it's encouraging in another way and I really feel like we need to look at that history to get a, a sense of that, of, of how serious the challenges to our, our way of life are now and the fact that we've been to some of these places before, which is both good and bad, I guess. Very nice. Yeah, excellent use. I love history that's sort of muscular and practical and that you can, that you can take it and put it to work like a, like a hammer or a saw or something. So I wholeheartedly endorse your approach. So, hey, Ron Judd, thank you for joining us on Columbia Conversations. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you to Ron Judd for speaking with me for this episode of Columbia Conversations from the Washington State Historical Society. Ron's piece in the Seattle Times Pacific Northwest Magazine is available at seattletimes.com. For more information about Columbia Magazine or to subscribe, please visit washingtonhistory.org. I'm Felix Bunnell. <laughs>